Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome to Administrative Static. This is John Vecchioni here with Mark Chenoweth. And uh, at this time of year, the Supreme Court is issuing opinions fast and furiously. Uh, And a number of them are coming out, and some of them have to do with administrative law, and some don't. But uh, since they're Supreme Court opinions, we we find interesting or going to have big effect. We like to discuss them. And I I think this week, one of the biggest ones... uh, that affects a lot of people's lives um, in its impact is uh, the Carson uh, case, Carson v. Macon. And this is a separation of power and free exercise case. And it was decided 6-3 in favor of the parents who wanted to send their kids to religious schools. Um, One was a Baptist school and one was, I I don't know, another type of Christian school. And... um, it's very interesting case if you uh, are interested in Maine and its uh, various problems. I, the the opinion says that Maine is the most rural state in the nation, and I think that means the most of its more of its citizens live in rural areas than anywhere else. And I guess that means places like Montana and Wyoming have more people living in their cities percentage wise. Because I I was kind of shocked by that. Um, yeah, that is a little surprising, although that is where Chief Justice Roberts summers. So maybe there's a connection there. Maybe. But although the people actually from New England, like Breyer, were on the other side of this. Uh, but in any event, in any event it's, it's interesting. So here's Maine has a problem because of this. It has something like 230 or 260 uh, administrative divisions that have no public school. They, they can't afford it and or it's too spread out. Uh, they have a county that's as big as Massachusetts and Rhode Island combined with barely anyone in it. So this this problem of distance and density ha- is a problem for educating kids and for the state maintaining schools and near everybody. So they've come up with a, um, a kind of an innovative idea to get around this problem. They say if there's no public school in your in your area, you can, we will give you a set fixed amount of tuition dollars and you can go to a private school. And uh, the only thing is it can't be a religious school because we don't want our public tax dollars going to religious schools. And uh, so. Um, and, and there's a so history around that too, there John, is, right? There I mean, is, which, which is very interesting. So what happens is, and this has to do with the court's uh, religious uh, and free exercise precedent in night. This, this law used to allow you to take your money to religious places as well. And then in 1981, the attorney general of Maine looked at all of the Supreme court precedent and said, you know, I don't think we're allowed to send tuition dollars to religious schools. And so he gave that opinion to the legislature in 1981, the legislature changed its view based on what the Supreme Court was doing at the time, probably made the lemon test mark, I'd say, and all the rest of it. Um, so- yeah, that's probably right. Although I, I was thinking more about 
state constitutional prohibitions in Maine from uh, the, the so-called Blaine Amendment. Blaine, yes. Well, he was from James Maine. G. Blaine, exactly. So, so yes, there was that, but that was not. They they actually changed their law in eighty one. It was a statutory change. They did not rely on their constitution for it. And gotcha. um, okay. But but the idea behind the Blaine Amendments is also the idea behind this, and it still has strong anti uh, anti disestablishmentarian um, force. Is, is yes. So and specifically so, anti Catholic in the case that, of the Blaine Amendments, I think that is that is correct. And so and and in fact, but and, and you can hear the echoes of this all through this opinion. But Roberts writes, and he says, "Look, here's what we've done," and he uses Trinity Lutheran, which some of our Listeners may remember is the one where uh, Missouri allowed uh, you to resurface to s- your playgrounds on your schools with to to be less damaging if you fell on them. Um, if unless you were a religious school, in which case I guess you you allowed God to stop you from breaking your leg. But in any event, the Missouri uh, that was struck down. They said no, no, you can't provide this service to schools and not also provide it to religious schools. And the, the um, they said that that, in another case called Espinoza, which was a Blaine Amendment case out of Montana, uh, controlled this. And it's interesting because uh, Justice Souter, who's also from New England, was on the panel below in this case, Carson B. Macon, and he distinguished those cases saying that this is for religious education, not for some um, separate um, not not from some for some separate part of schooling, and that's and that's part of what makes it different. And there was a case called Locke that the Supreme Court decided where um, a state had said, "No, we're not going to fund. We, we'll fund all kinds of educational programs, but not for the ministry, because we don't. We're not in the business of making ministers. That's not the state's job." And the Supreme Court agreed with them. But in this case, Roberts and the majority says this. That isn't like this because this money is going to parents to pick a school. And if they pick a school that meets all the criteria, except that it's religious, they don't get the money. And that is discrimination against the religious choice. And it is kind of an unconstitutional conditions case, Mark. I I think that what they're saying is, is that um, you can't condition their choice of religion religion, uh, negatively. And I, I think this opinion is correct. I, I think they're right about it. But the dissent says, wait a minute, that they're just if you want to have a higher barrier between church and state than the Constitution has, you're allowed to do that. And and they immediately use the play between the joints uh, language that was in Trinity Lutheran, that there's some play. States can do some different things. But here, I think that the the. Uh, Blatant discrimination against the religious uh, choices overcame the establish the, the um, distance disestablishment um, part of it, and uh, the the dissent, particular Sotomayor, is very very afraid that this is going to be um, used to um, you know require all kinds of uh, religious instruction in school. Um, she says at the end, what a difference five years make. In 2017, I feared that the court was, quote, leading us to a place where separation of church and state is a constitutional slogan, not a constitutional commitment. Well, I don't think it is a constitutional commitment. It's not in the Constitution. It comes from a letter of Thomas Jefferson to the Baptists. And as you know, Mark, 
Thomas Jefferson is not who I listen to on constitutional issues. Um, <laughs> he wasn't even at the constitutional convention. <laughs> and then he's always fighting with John Marshall about everything. And I tend to go with Marshall. And so, so, so in any event, um, but I, I do think that there's what, what Roberts and the majority says is, well, wait a second. You can have public schools. You can require public schools. You can do all kinds of things and make sure that you have public schooling. What you can't do is say, we are going to allow you to go to any private school that does all these other things, single sex, all the rest of it. But you can't do it if they have religious instruction at that school. So you can choose not to have a subsidy program, but the subsidy cannot um, – hurt the choice of, of religious believers. Uh, and, and so I think this is the right outcome. And I, but what this really does, the court is very strongly going in the direction that neutral programs where the money uh, goes to the parents to, to where the kids go to school, that that is not going to negatively, uh, that, that religious schools are not going to be negatively affected by that. And that has huge consequences because I think these programs are expanding everywhere and um, they will, they will obviously the, the, the anti-Catholic position. And also I think now with the cultural issues that in religious schools, you may not have, uh, you may not teach uh, what they teach in public schools about marriage and family and all that. I, I believe that this could increasingly cause uh, some divisions, but I don't think it's going to cause as many divisions as uh, as as the as the dissent says, because I don't think I think that people will make compromises, and that the the need for more school options will outweigh uh, I think people's concerns. Um, some of the commentators have said, "Aha, well, they'll make all these uh, Muslim schools in Maine," and I, you know, okay, maybe they will. Who cares? I mean, I don't I don't know that there's a, a, a large population of people who want that. But if they do, it, it shouldn't be uh, discriminatory against their uh, against their schools as long as they meet all the other criteria. And I can't really see who's hurt. The, the other interesting thing about this is there's so few people in these rural areas that it's not clear that it affects more than, um, you know, less than 10,000 kids, I think, less than 5,000. So it, it is it if you're if you're in a place with a public school that Maine funds, you you don't get this option. Ah, so okay. I didn't uh, I didn't quite pick up on that part of it. That's uh... yeah 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 yeah. So it's only for this vast area of of Maine that has no public schools in it because they can't do it. So if you're in if you're in um you know Portland at Portland or or uh, at, or Bangor or someplace that's large and has public schools, you don't get this. This is only for this problem of not having schools nearby. So, and, and really, the court's been on this this trajectory for 20 years, right? I mean, it's almost exactly 20 years ago, June 27th, 2002, the court handed down its decision in Zelman v. Simmons-Harris, which upheld the Cleveland School Choice Program. And, and the logic there was that the dollars go to the parents. Uh, and I think as long as, as the money is following the, the individual, uh, that was that decision was... Chief Justice Rehnquist joined by O'Connor, Scalia, Kennedy, Thomas. Uh, so only only Thomas remains of those of those five. But that that principle survives that if the, and the, if the and dollars the, the, are following the individual. Yeah, the state is not directing the dollars to a religious organization. That's I right. think that is that is an important point in all of this. And I think it's an important point for Roberts and the rest of them. Um, so <clears throat> I think that this is going to have uh, uh, a lot of effects on the school choice uh, movement, 
And I also think, though, that it will lower uh, disputes because you can't exclude people. That's not going to cause disputes. We'll be right back. Well, breaking news here on administrative static. Uh, as John mentioned, these decisions are coming out fast and furious and uh, and people responding to them fast and furiously as well. <laughs> I suspect that they will be. Uh, but uh, uh, this morning, the Supreme Court handed down New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, superintendent of New York State Police. And this is the case uh, up from the Second Circuit Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court that folks have been waiting on uh, to see whether a public carry uh, would be upheld under the Second Amendment or whether the Supreme Court might decide that this constitutes a reasonable uh, restriction on gun rights that, uh, that would be upheld uh, under the Second Amendment. And so if you, if you haven't already heard by now, uh, the court upheld, or, or excuse me, the court struck down, they upheld the Second Amendment, obviously, but they struck down uh, New York's regulation and it's a six to three decision. And it's, uh, uh, there's a lot to say about this, but a couple of things uh, jump out at me. But I guess at first I should say that Justice Thomas delivered the opinion. It was joined by Chief Justice Roberts, Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. And then there, were, there was a concurrence by Alito, a concurrence by Kavanaugh, in which Roberts joined, and a concurrence by Barrett. Breyer filed uh, a dissent in which Sotomayor and Kagan joined. So this is a one of the typical, uh, or it's a six to three decision. What we would have typically used to would have called the the, the usual five four split, but it's not five four anymore. It's it's six to three. So you have all the conservatives among the six and all the liberal justices uh, among the three uh, here. And I haven't had uh, much of a chance yet. Uh, the decision just came out as we were starting the program. So I haven't had much of a chance to uh, to delve into the uh, concurrences or dissent, uh, John. I don't know if you have, but uh, but let me let me walk through uh, what uh, what the majority says, and then there are a couple of points that I wanted to uh, to uh, to bring out. Uh, first, the court uh, walks through the the fact that uh, you know an, an individual who wants to to carry a firearm uh, can get a unrestricted license in New York. Uh, to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver, but only if you can prove that quote unquote proper cause exists for doing so. This is under New York Penal Law 400.002 little f. And in order to satisfy proper cause, the person has to quote demonstrate a special need for self protection distinguishable from that of the general community unquote. And there's a that language comes from a from a New York. Uh, case. And what happened in, in this case, what led to this particular uh, decision from the court is that two adults in New York, one named Brandon, and I'm not sure if it's Koch or, or Koch, but K-O-C-H, and Robert Nash, 
uh, had applied for these unrestricted licenses to carry a handgun in public uh, based on just a general interest in self-defense. And the state denied these applications uh, because they didn't satisfy uh, the proper cause requirement that I was just talking about. So they sued for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging violation of their Second Amendment rights, and then by extension, their 14th Amendment rights, which is what applies the Second Amendment to the states. And because they felt like their their denial to an unrestricted uh, license and this requirement to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense uh, violated their constitutional rights. The district court uh, had dismissed the both of the petitioners' complaints. The Court of Appeals had affirmed that dismissal. They relied on a prior Second Circuit decision. And so the court granted cert to uh, you know, to look at this question. And the, the court uh, doesn't seem, John, to have had much difficulty reaching the decision, that, which is to say, this is not one of those decisions where you, you feel like they're really agonizing over it or, or sort of uh, you know, tr- working really hard to to reach a particular result, they, they they treat this as having as flowing pretty directly from the decisions in District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald uh, v. Chicago from from about a decade uh, and, ago. And I will I will just add because I have read the concurrence that Alito agrees with that, and he really only writes his concurrence to say that the the dissent is going the dissents are over egging the pudding on what they've done here. He says, all we've done is follow the logic that if you can protect yourself in the home, you can protect yourself outside the home. And it doesn't say anything about the type of gun you can own. We don't say anything about the other things we said in those two cases about things that the states can do. We don't retreat from that one bit. So, and and it, the dissent writes about the mass shootings and he brings up that, uh, you know, one of those shootings happened in Buffalo, that this law wasn't it didn't have any effect one one way or another. Oh, so that's a good point. Yeah. So he really he really is um, just writing to say that all the parade of horribles that the dissent has that's not what this did, and it's and it's hewing very closely to those previous two cases. That's yeah. Well, let me doing. let me let me get back then to what to what they they did say in the majority. So that uh, it said that you know Heller and McDonald had a, this two step framework for analyzing. Uh, or I'm sorry, I, I said that incorrectly. The courts of appeals, subsequent to Heller and McDonald, uh, the court said, have developed a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges. And the, the first step, which the court says is broadly consistent with Heller, demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But then there's a second step that the courts of appeals have been using that applies means-in scrutiny uh, in the Second Amendment uh, context. And what the court says is that's not part of Heller and McDonald. They didn't have any sort of means in test, no strict or intermediate scrutiny, no interest balancing inquiry, nothing like that. And so, uh, uh, and at the near the end, the, the court points out that we don't use that sort of balancing test uh, when we're talking about other parts of the Bill of Rights. Like we don't, we don't say, well, you have the right to free speech if you can show that you have a special need to free speech. I mean, that's not the kind of thing we do. Uh, with other uh, rights in the Bill of Rights. And so we shouldn't be doing that with Second Amendment rights either. So essentially, it, it strips away that second step that the courts of appeals have been doing and returns the analysis to just the Heller-McDonald uh, historical uh, inquiry analysis. And the court acknowledges that historical analysis can be difficult. It can be nuanced. Uh, 
and that uh, and that there won't necessarily be precise analogies from from history to you know to what we're uh, dealing with uh, today, but uh, that nonetheless we have to try. We have to use the Constitution. That's the thing that that the people have have uh, have passed on this on this subject, and the test uh, applies today every bit as much uh, as it did at the time of the founding or at the time of, of Reconstruction uh, in the in the late 1860s, but uh, still has to apply to, to modern circumstances. And so that's where we get into this analogical reasoning and, and the, the court references the fact that uh, you know, the term arms in the Second Amendment doesn't mean just arms that existed at the time that the Second Amendment was ratified. You know, that's, it's not that confining a term. It, it's broader than that. Uh, so we have to analogize. And so one of the things the court says is, you know, it does cover handguns because that they are in wide distribution today. It's the most common means of, of self-defense uh, with, with a hand, with a, with an armament today. And so you can't say uh, you can't rule out application to, to handguns on that basis. Uh, for example, they're the most widely used for, uh, for self-defense, I guess, is the point that I, uh, that I meant to be to be making there, whether it's in the home or whether it, particularly outside of the home, if you're going to be engaged in self-defense with a firearm, chances are you're going to be using a handgun. Not always, but a lot of the time, enough of the time that uh, that uh, you're not going to exclude them from Second Amendment protection here. Uh, and the, the court says that, uh, you know, these analogies don't have to be to be perfect, but that the New York's proper cause requirement uh, just doesn't have a good historical analogy. New York apparently tried, and John, I didn't read the briefing in this case, but apparently New York tried to sort of suggest that its proper cause requirement was similar to sensitive place laws that existed, uh, where you know, even even at earlier points in our history, there were certain places where you weren't allowed to bring a concealed uh, weapon. Uh, but uh, But the court says, look, you can't effectively declare the entire island of Manhattan a sensitive place, uh, just because uh, you know it's it's crowded, or just because the New York police uh, are there, uh, you, you, that's not the kind of law that existed uh, historically. That's that that stretches the analogy too far. Uh, but uh, that doesn't mean that that there aren't going to be uh, restrictions that are that are possible. And I think this gets back to what you were what you were saying, John, about about uh, Justice Alito's concurrence. And that's that, uh, but we're just going to have to use a historical test here, not some sort of balancing test. Judges aren't going to be put in the position of deciding whether the law is reasonable uh, or you know, whether the, the legislature has done something reasonable. That's not the role here. The role is to, to see whether the law is similar to something uh, that existed uh, in uh, in history. And <clears throat> yeah, go I found it interesting uh, that the court also, at least Alito pointed out that the the argument of of New York was that even if if you said that you uh, walked through dark alleys at night, late at night because of your job and you were terrified because there'd been many muggings in the area, that wasn't enough to get a gun under this. I think that that answer, um, because some of the other states that they put in there, Connecticut and others have similar laws, but it appears in operation they give you a gun just asking as long as you're not a criminal or, or have like some sort of uh, mental issue that they, 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 they actually ran it the way the Supreme Court wanted it run. But New York freely admitted that even if you under those circumstances, they wouldn't issue a gun. 
Yeah, I, I agree. That sounds that sounds very important. Uh, but the court does suggest, and I, maybe I'll end with this, a couple of kinds of regulations that, that might survive. So it says that these older statutes prohibited bearing arms in a way that spread fear or terror among the people. They talk about the common law offense of affray. Uh, and so you could imagine that, that certain kinds of weapons wouldn't be allowed uh, to be, uh, that are dangerous and unusual, uh, wouldn't be allowed for self-defense uh, today. So you know, I, I can imagine someone can't carry around a hand grenade for self-defense or something like that, right? Uh, and so there are there, there are still restrictions that are going to be available. But if the states want to do this, they have to look at common law offenses. They have to look at historical statutory prohibitions and even these surety statutes. We didn't get to talk about that. But uh, there will be gun controls that are possible under this uh, under this new regime.